is coming out of Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 34. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on a rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought, to, brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can, we pair the, can, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Joneses. So many verses, we had to bring two people up. Okay, because there are so many verses in today's passage that we just heard, and because the way Mark writes this gospel... Instead of combing through every single verse, which is what we do kind of every week, Sean kind of takes it verse by verse by verse, 
what we're going to do this week is really take the plane up a couple thousand feet and get an overall view of like what is the essence of this, really this chapter almost. So uh, the main points of the text are three things that we're going to cover today. The first is this, why Jesus taught in parables. Like, why does he use this communication style? It shifts in the book of Mark in chapter 4. He starts teaching in parables. Like, what are parables and why does he choose to teach this way? That's the first thing. The second thing is, how do these parables illustrate the kingdom of God or Jesus' mission? Like, what what is the kingdom of God and how do these parables illustrate that? That's the second thing. And then the third thing is really... As we hear the the truth of the kingdom through parables and other ways, how are we to respond as hearers? So that's where we're going to go in this text. It's going to be kind of an overview, like I said. Why did Jesus teach the parables? How are the parables illustrated in the kingdom? What is the kingdom? And then what is our role and responsibility as hearers? And if you're new, we have been covering Mark Um, for the last we've met as a congregation who started three months ago. And so we have been in the book of Mark. All the redemption congregations, as Sean mentioned, are are, uh, are in the book of Mark right now, preaching through the same passage at the same time. And so we have been the first three chapters up to chapter four. So if you're new, what have you missed in the book of Mark? Um, Some of the things you've missed is that uh, Jesus is demonstrating and establishing his authority. Mark is letting us know that like, Jesus is categorically different. He's different. And he's about um, him being the son of God and him um, calling disciples to himself. The book of Mark is really about discipleship. And it's it's short, it's fast-paced. It's the shortest of the four gospels, which are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Um, and, uh, And Jesus talks about excuse me, the things that he's done, we've, we've seen him get baptized uh, in the first three chapters. He's called his disciples to follow him. He's healed people with leprosy, healed a paralytic. He's established himself over the Sabbath. He's healed a man with a withered hand. And in the midst of doing all this, he has this constant interaction with these leaders called the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders at the time. And he's kind of having this dialogue and this interaction. And he's using these teachable moments as he heals people and he and he does these different things to say, listen, you, you guys don't have it right. Like you think you really know what God is about and who God is, but I need to correct your thinking because it's, it's incorrect. And so we see this interaction between him and the Pharisees as Sean has been laying out for us, also him and his disciples. But until this chapter, until chapter 4, we really don't see him preaching to the masses of people because of how Mark writes his book. We see uh, the first words that he says in Mark 1.15 are the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so we see that little interaction, but this is the first time we actually see him preaching to the masses in Mark chapter 4. And again, I think um, he's coming back to his theme or his mission, which is the kingdom of God. And for some of us, this is a a radical shift in our thinking, is that Jesus didn't just come for the forgiveness of sins. That's not just why he came, right? Like, even if that's all he did was to come to forgive us for our sins, like, that, that would be enough. Think about it. No shame, no condemnation, eternal life. Like, but it's deeper. It's richer. He comes to 
He comes to bring the kingdom of God upon his people. He doesn't come just to save sins. He comes to inaugurate the kingdom. And the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, these words are they're synonymous in the Gospels. Um, like Matthew writes a ton more about the kingdom of heaven is what he uses versus the words of kingdom of God. But it's kind of like our country. If you're talking about our country, you could say, you know, I'm, I'm from America. Or you can say I'm, I'm from the USA. Those terms mean the same thing. And so when you come against this word or this phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, it means the same thing. And just to give you guys some context for how much this phrase is used, the word pray shows up 28 times in the gospel in those those four books of of the eyewitness account of Jesus. The word believe shows up 82 times in the gospels. The word kingdom shows up 124 times in the gospels. And to understand the kingdom of God, we really have to um, take a step back and understand the full story of God starting in the beginning with Genesis is that God is a, a good God that creates good things. And in his creation, he's creating birds and mountains and the sea and the air. And he creates the, the pinnacle of his creation, which is mankind. And he has this desire, this deep desire for this intimate relationship with mankind And so he creates the opportunity of choice so that there's love involved, right? So he puts this tree in the middle of the garden. He says, listen, you can do whatever you want. I'm going to establish you have to do work. But this tree, stay away from this tree. It's not going to be good for you. And most of you know what happens in Genesis 3, the very beginning of the story, is that mankind gets tricked. They get tricked into believing that God's like somehow holding out on them, right? Like God, like God doesn't really love you if he puts these boundaries on you. Like you, you should know better. And so they get tricked into believing that, that their way is better than God's way, that God might be holding out on them, and they disobey God, and everything falls apart. And so now you see that. We see that even if you don't agree with the teachings of Jesus, you can see, man, our world is a mess, right? Even what happened in the last couple of weeks in Baltimore are the effects of the ripple of that decision in Genesis chapter 3. That's what Christians would say. That because sin now enters in, there's, there's still beauty in, in the world because God created. But now because of sin, there's consequences to our destructive decisions. And so because of that, God is sending someone to fix the problem, to pick up the broken pieces and begin to put them and fashion them back together. And that person is his son named Jesus who came and lived a perfect life, took our penalty for the brokenness, and then rose three days later, defeating death. And so to understand the kingdom, we need Jesus is coming and saying, you need to be massively realigned to what the kingdom is really about. And how I would define this kingdom, I think we've got a slide up here. The kingdom is really the power of God from heaven, entering the world and redeeming and restoring all things. From every angle, social, economical, every single piece is being put together through what Jesus did on the cross. And theologians would say, like, the kingdom is here. When Jesus comes, he's establishing his kingdom. That's the the main thrust and the mission of Jesus in the Gospels. I'm here to bring the kingdom. Again, salvation is a huge piece of that, but it's bigger, it's deeper, it's richer than just your ticket to heaven. 
And Jesus says, I'm establishing my kingdom. I'm here. And so theologians would say, like, the kingdom is, is it's here, but it's not yet. Because it's not fully realized. And it won't be fully realized until Jesus comes back a second time as the judge. So we're kind of in this in-between state in the story. But make it clear that Jesus' mission is the kingdom of God. He's coming to unfold what that is. And we see it here in Mark, and we see it in our text specifically. And in these three parables that Charles and Amanda read, Jesus' imagery about the kingdom, how he describes the metaphor he uses is a seed. Like, why would Jesus use a seed to describe his kingdom? And I think the reason he does that is there's confusion of, of when his hearers heard the word kingdom, or even when we hear the word kingdom, we think of somebody coming in, establishing power, taking over rule and reigning over everything with force and coercion. That's how we think when we hear the word kingdom. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's way different. Let me help shift your thinking. A seed is small. It starts small in the ground. It goes internally, and then it transforms the whole area. That's what my kingdom is going to look like. Israel thought, God's people thought, like, when, when the Messiah comes, he's going to take over Rome, and he's gonna, they're gonna, we're just going to rule over everybody. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That, that's not how my kingdom works. It starts small. It's subtle. But then it grows massively. And again, the kingdom is um, its kind of counterintuitive to us. Like we really, we don't understand it and we can miss it, especially as Americans. Um, because that idea of kingdom, it's, it's, a, it's about me, right? Like this is my kingdom. That's, we wouldn't probably say that, but that's really how we operate a lot of the times. And Jesus is saying no. In Matthew chapter 5, he begins his most famous sermon, the, the, um, the Beatitudes, by saying in, in Matthew 5, 3, like, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom does not, it doesn't come naturally to us. Again, it's kind of a foreign concept, this understanding. And um, anytime you're trying to communicate anything that's foreign, really what you need to do is, um, is establish something familiar as a baseline for people to begin to understand, to connect those dots when there's a foreign concept, right? So um, my wife, Teresa, a.k.a. Tree, a.k.a. Sugarfresh16, a.k.a. Tall and Beautiful, <laughs> woo, okay. She, if you're not aware, she was on the um, 2001 National Champion softball team at the University of Arizona. She was a pitcher. That's right. Give it up for the athletes in the room. Okay, so um, she has continued because she has so much instruction. She was a pitcher, and um, she loves to teach and instruct young girls how to pitch. And so if you've been over to our house, we built a bullpen. In our, well, my father-in-law built a bullpen in our backyard, and, um, and she has clients come through, and she teaches them how to pitch. She's a pitching coach, a pitching instructor. So she has got girls from about 8 years old all the way up to about 16 years old. And um, she, throwing a ball like this at speeds where the ball drops, where it rises, that, that's a foreign thing. Not a lot of us, I don't think, could do that. And so any, she's introducing a foreign concept to girls. And so she, she wants, as a communicator, to begin to establish a baseline that's familiar so they, they can begin to do something that's foreign. 
right? And so my office, I have an office in her house, and the window is actually right here in the bullpens, like right here. And normally she has clients in the evenings or sometimes on the weekends, but every now and again, she'll have somebody come over during the day when I'm working in there. And so I can hear her teach and instruct, and she's an unbelievable teacher and coach. And I'm listening to the phrases she's using, trying to establish something familiar so these girls can understand how to throw a ball, how to pitch a ball that way. And so she'll start off, right, like, I'm going to do this. Okay, here we go. So, So you start here, right? And she's telling those girls, like, the first thing, you've got the ball in the mitt. The first thing that goes up are these arms, right? And she calls them Superman arms, okay? So if, I'm a, if I don't know anything about pitching, okay, I, I've seen Superman. I know he kind of flies with his arms like that. That's a familiar term. I can get that, okay? And then you want to oh, go like this, and you want to establish what's called a line of power, right? And so I know what it looks like to kind of stand on a line, and that's what she's kind of trying to say. You stand on a line. And then when you're here, she says, like, imagine you're pitching in a skinny hallway, and so you want to open this way. You don't want to open this way or else your line of power is not going to be good. So you want to bring it up here and you want to keep it skinny in a skinny hallway and then you want to come through like this. Ah, like that. It doesn't really look like that at all. But what she's beginning, it doesn't. What she's beginning to do is she's beginning to establish something familiar so they can understand something foreign. You following me? And I think this is exactly what Jesus is doing when he teaches in these things called the parables. Because we don't understand the kingdom, because our, our, our view or understanding of the kingdom is different than his view or understanding, it's, it's foreign to us, we might miss it, he begins to use these parables or these stories to illustrate things that we can understand. And definitely he was a master communicator with his culture, these people that would understand seeds and and growing plants and wheat, things like that. And so he begins to tell these parables so that they start to understand what he's talking about. I think some of the other reason he begins to tell the parables, and we see it in the text in kind of the middle, that verse 12, that's a little bit disturbing and kind of confusing where he, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 6, is that... um, He's beginning for the first time, I think, to to really weed out the masses of people, right? At this point, he is beginning to get so many followers, he physically has to get on a boat and separate himself and teach from back here because there's so many crowds. And so Jesus is, is going, okay, let me separate myself a little bit and let me begin to instruct in things called parables that, like, you really got to kind of follow Jesus to begin to understand what he's talking about. Otherwise, you're like, this dude, I don't know what he is saying. And, and people at this point were following Jesus for different reasons. We see in another part of the Gospels, they're like, hey, just like Jesus, can you, can you um, like produce that food again? Like you did that, that, that fish and like bread like trick, like, and we're kind of hungry. Can you like, and so people are following him for reasons that aren't all the way right. And sometimes we follow Jesus, not always for the right reasons, right? Whether it's we want heaven or we we want something from God. And that's what's happening with this crowd. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to start speaking in a way where like, if they don't really want me, if they're not really a child of mine, they're not going to understand. And I'm okay with that. 
And so he begins to weed out these kind of um, followers that are kind of fringe followers or they want something from Jesus. And he says it clearly. He says, listen, he tells his disciples, I'm going to speak in parables. I'm going to explain it to you that it might not make sense to people that don't really want to follow me. And then he has this phrase he continues to utter over and over in the text we just read. He who has ears, let them hear. What the heck does that mean? Like, he who has ears, let them hear. Um, The legendary professor Howard Hendricks, in his book, Teaching to Change Lives, he talks about this phrase, he who has ears, let them hear. This is what he says in this. I'm going to read a quote for you. He says, Jesus said, he who has ears, let them hear. The first time I thought, the first time I read that, I thought, Lord, you've got to be kidding. What else are you supposed to do with ears? Collect wax, hang earrings? But Jesus had in mind something more. When you read the word hear in the New Testament, you can also read it do. Because Jesus welded those two words together when he said, and he's quoting from the King James, so it's a little older, he that heareth my words and doeth them, he it is who loves me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I tell you. Hendricks goes on. He says, his implication, either stop calling me Lord or start doing what I ask you to do. And so what does it mean to hear or to do? And what I want to look at specifically is these four categories that Jesus gives in our text of the parable of the sower. And really, this is, a, um, this is the first parable that goes out in all the Gospels before there's this shift in communication where Jesus starts teaching about the parables. This is always the first one, and this is almost the only one that gets explained in every text. Like, Jesus says it, and then his disciples are like, what? And then he's like, okay, here's what it means, okay? And it's really kind of like a parable about parables. Like, how well can you listen to the rest of these parables that I'm going to teach you? Because it's so, so key, right? How, how we understand and how we grab hold of that kingdom that everything is being made right is through hearing. It's through hearing. That's the main ingredient in the kingdom. And so let's look at these four categories that Jesus gives in our text. The first one that he gives, this seed, he, he kind of establishes that um, later on we find out that this seed represents the word. And I would say like the soil or the ground kind of represents our hearts, right? That's kind of what's taking place here. And so the first category he says in verse 4, And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and devoured it. So the first category is this seed on the the path. And I would say that that um, has to do with your heart or your soil, the soil of your heart being hard, being hard. Um, And maybe you don't want anything to do with Christianity. Maybe you kind of, you're, you're related to somebody that is a Christian and you hear them talk about the word of God and you just don't want any part of it. Or maybe you've um, been in church, you kind of grew up around church, and you, kinda, you can kind of articulate the Christian faith, but it's just theoretical, like, like you've never had like a personal encounter um, with Jesus, not in some freaky, weird, like, oh, way, but just like 
Like it's never been personal to you. It's just all intellectual. And following Jesus is intensely personal. It's intensely personal. And so if this is you and you've never, you can't say, well, I don't, I don't know that I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's kind of a phrase that gets used in, in Christianity, which I don't really like. But I think the point is like, you have this interaction from a personal level. It's not just based on the facts. Because it's, it's, it's very different to know about someone than to actually know someone. Right? Like, like Ronald Reagan, who's a president. If you don't know, he's a dude was kind of a hopeless romantic for his wife, Nancy, which I can appreciate. Um, and he would write notes all the time to his wife. And somebody collected all these notes, and they put them in a book. And, um, and in one of these notes, he's writing to his, his wife, Nancy Reagan, at Christmas. Listen to what he says in this handwritten note. He says, Dear wife, a few days ago, you told me I was angry with you. I tried to explain I was frustrated with myself. But later on, I realized that my frustration might have been a touch of self-pity because I've been going around feeling that you are frequently angry with me. No more. We are so much one that you are as vital to me as my own heart, with one exception. You can never be replaced with a transplant. Whatever I treasure and enjoy, this home, our ranch, the sight of the sea, all would be without meaning if I didn't have you. I live in a permanent Christmas because God gave me you. He's landed on. As I write this, you are hurrying by back and forth, doing the things that only you can do, and I get a feeling of warmth and happiness just watching you. That's why I can't pass you or let you pass me without reaching out to touch you. I'll write no more, for I'm going to catch up with you wherever you are and hold you for a moment. Merry Christmas, darling. I love you with all my heart, your husband. So Ronnie has some game. Woo! Sick. Men better be taking notes. You might want to go buy that book and just cross out Nancy and put your wife's name and put your name down at the bottom. So, like, I can know facts about Ronald Reagan. Like, I can know he was our 40th president. He had his, his term in the 80s. I can understand what his policies were, like how he changed things for us as a nation. Like, I can even do facts about him, where he grew up. But, like, I don't know him like Nancy Reagan knows him. Right? And so knowing Jesus is not this facts or these understand. Like, it's knowing him in an intimate way that he changes you that when you're singing up here like you mean the words and if your heart is hard the word just kind of it falls on concrete so i I believe that's the kind of the first category of person that jesus is describing this that the seed gets thrown out and it's just it's hard the enemy comes and steals it away the second in verses five and six he says, the other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depths of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. 
And the seed on the socky ground, I, I would, or sock, the rocky ground, I would call a shallow heart. A shallow heart. So maybe you have had like a, a connection with Jesus or you went to a camp or something like that and you kind of had this Jesus hide. You felt this emotional connection, but that's like all you felt? Like it never took root? Like, like it was kind of just like, man, I love that feeling. Like, like I want to encounter that feeling with Jesus, but then like I don't want the hard times. Like I don't want the hard stuff. And you start to uh, treat Jesus like he's at the buffet and you can just kind of pick and choose and like, and what's going to happen when something hard happens is that you're just going to be like, nah, no, I don't really want Jesus anymore. I like that emotional connection, but like the hard stuff, I don't, don't want to deal with that. And then I, I would say, you, you, then you don't really want God, right? God becomes a means to an end. You just want what's good, but you don't want the other stuff. Like Jesus is clear. The New Testament is clear. If you follow Jesus, there were involved suffering, hard things. Like don't let anybody trick you into believing coming to Jesus is all roses and there's nothing hard after that. That is not what the Bible teaches, but God gives you the strength in those hard times. He doesn't leave you alone. He increases your faith in the midst of those hard times. And this category of people, man, when, when the word gets sown, they, they, they spring up quickly and they get really excited and everything's great. But then when something hard comes, they just, they're out the door. That's the second category that Jesus gives. The third is the, uh, in verse 7. He says, other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. We have the hard heart, the shallow heart, and I would call this the divided heart. Like you, your heart is divided. You kind of want Jesus, but then you want all the stuff the world has to offer. And the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires, they, they choke out the word. You come to Jesus because you, you know you don't want hell. I don't want that, but I want heaven. But I also want to keep doing whatever I want to do. And I want to kind of, so you kind of begin to, to try and worship God a little bit, but then like you're still worshiping like your job or, you know, your uh, person you're trying to um, be a significant other with or your kids you might be worshiping. And God is saying like, that, that's like the worst place to be because your heart's divided and you're trying to please two people and you can't. And maybe you've come to Jesus because, like, you're down for the salvation stuff, the heaven stuff, but, like, the idea of, like, giving everything to him, like, making him Lord of your life and saying, Jesus, I'm, this is all yours, freaks you out. Or you might think, I'm not ready to make that commitment right now. And Jesus is saying, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And that's hard in our um, consumeristic view of life and Christianity, how that seeps into our faith, that we can kind of just pick and choose. And if you're trying to honor Jesus, but he's not continuing to change you, that your worth and your value and your identity come from other th your job instead of from him, like this is the category you're beginning, and, and the word is going to get choked it's not going to bear fruit. And then this fourth category that Jesus gives is this idea of the, the soil that is, that is good soil and fruit 
um, bears itself. And when I started thinking about this um, application-wise for me personally as I started to wrestle with this text of like, okay, like, how do I make my heart soft? Like the soil of my heart. Because like, these things still happen. Even if you come to Christ, there's still cares of the world that I wrestle with that are hard, that choke out the things of Jesus. And so I came up with three that just came to the top of the surfaces. I thought, man, like what prevents me personally from hearing or doing or obeying God's word? Here's the three. The first one is this. I haven't created space to listen. So I don't know what he wants me to say. How can I hear God's word if I don't create space to listen to it, to read it? And I don't know if you're like me, but like when my alarm goes off or I wake up, my feet hit the floor and we're going. There's stuff to do. There's life to be lived. And if I don't stop and create space intentionally to sit, to read my Bible, to just sit and listen for 15 minutes, half an hour. Like, if I don't do that, and if I don't physically write it on my schedule, it just won't happen. Life just happens, and I just, it's, it's it. So if your only spiritual intake is this hour and a half once a week on Sunday, that's the only time you're hearing God's word taught, like, you're not really gonna get it. You might get it a little bit, but it's like if I was in a relationship with my wife and I only talked to her for one hour a week, that's it. And then I expected things like our relationship to be really good. Nobody would think that. So why do we do that in our time with the word? Right? We don't sit. We don't sit at Jesus' feet. We don't read our Bible. We need to create space. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And we see this in the life of Jesus. Mark, we already saw it in, in chapter 1, verse 35. It says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place where he prayed. Even Jesus created space. Where is the space in your schedule to sit and read? Because we're all busy. We all got things going on. Let's create space. What a better, you can't think of a better thing to do to sit and listen. So that's the first thing that prevents me from hearing. Those who have ears, let them hear. Like like if I'm not listening, if I'm not reading, if I'm not praying, I'm not going to understand. I'm not going to. Live a life God calls me to. That's the first thing. The second thing, what I do personally, I, I start to grade God's word on a curve. And what I mean by that is like I'll read the scriptures, right? I create space and I'm reading whether it's for the first time or I'm mesmerizing a passage. And then like I can so easily spin that thing, man. Like I can so easily be like, oh, that doesn't really apply to me. Or that the original language, that the, no, I don't think that's what it means. Um, like I can spin it to my benefit. Like when I'm, uh, when I'm sinning, or what, like I can just so quickly spin it and grade it on a curve. Right? So like an example would be like forgiveness. Like how often am I called to forgive? Like I'm called to forgive all the time. 
right? Jesus has that interaction with Peter, like, well, how many times should I forgive? Se-? Peter's like, seven? Like, thinking, oh, yeah, that's a lot. Jesus is like, no, like, 70 times, like, infinite number. Because of how much have I been forgiven by Christ is how much I should forgive others. But I start to grade it on a curve, and I'm like, no, listen, I already I forgave that guy a couple times. And, like, he keeps doing the same thing. I'm not going to keep forgiving him. That's beginning to grade God's word on a curve. Or how about this one um, for you that are married, right? Like, um, so easy to grade God's word on a curve when it comes to my spouse, right? Um, And for young parents, you'll appreciate this idea. Uh, I have a buddy that they have um, twin boys who are three, and they have a three-month-old boy. So he called me. We were chatting this week, and um, I was just getting caught up on, like, what's going on in your life, man? How are you doing? He's like, listen, I know you already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't ever have any more kids. Like, just whatever people tell you, don't have more kids, man. Like, don't believe it. Because he's exhausted, right? Like, they're, they're trying to manage how they discipline their three-year-old twins, and then they got this three-month-old, and he's just like they're waking up in the middle of the night, and they're just so, so tired. And I remember those days. I remember those days. And um, our kids are older now, but, like, you're laying in bed. Your parents know. You're laying in bed, and you hear it. You hear it, right? You hear it. Whether it's like a monitor or like an earshot, you hear it, right? And you do, you do the thing with your spouse. You all know what I'm talking about. Like you play that tug-of-war chicken game with your spouse. Like, okay, if I pretend like I'm sleeping long enough, they're going to have to go get the kid because they're eventually going to wake up. So, so you're kind of awake and you're kind of but like, you're just, you're like a log, man. You ain't moving. And you're just... And so that would happen, and then, like, the, God's Spirit would be like, Ephesians 5.25. What does Ephesians 5.25 say? <laughs> Listen, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, I hated that verse. I hated that verse. <laughs> it's 3 in the morning, right? And I'm laying there, and it's like, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like, okay. For me not to grade that on a curve. For me not to compare myself to other husbands I know or, well, I got up last week or, like, no, no, no. Get up and serve your wife. Okay. All right, Lord, give me the grace to be able to love my wife and not be bitter in this moment. And let me love her. Okay, I'm getting up. Right, but so many times I grade God's word on a curve. God commands things of us. Follow me. Well, I'll kind of follow you. What? How about be baptized, right? Like he calls us to be baptized, not for salvation purposes, but to show like, man, I wanted everybody to know that I'm for Jesus. And maybe you're going, well, I kind of feel goofy being baptized. I'm an adult and that seems kind of weird. And like you're starting to grade God's word on a curve. And it's choking the life out of you. It's choking the life out of me. So I haven't created space to listen. I grade God's word on the curve in the third one. It, 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 there's no else way to say it. It's pride. I am prideful. That's not a good thing. I, I, I think my way is better, right? Which is kind of the root. And and C.S. Lewis would say it's the root, it's the sin of all other sins is pride. Underneath every other sin, it's it's really pride is what it is. 
right? Because you're grading God's word on a curve, it's pride because you don't want to feel stupid or you want to act like you're prideful. You care what other people think. And so many times this happens, like, man, um, I'll begin to get prideful for whatever reason. I should deserve this, right? Like, stop. And God's telling me, stop it. That is choking the life out of you. It's another verse I hate. Proverbs 28, 13. I hate this verse. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So if you hide your transgressions, right, like you don't want to say it because you're prideful, you're worried about whatever somebody was going to think, like, like you've got pride welled up in you. If you conceal it, you won't prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will obtain mercy. Why is it so hard? You need to have that conversation with that person, and you're just holding it back. You're like, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to do it. Right? You're just concealing that instead of just saying, okay, how much? It's scary. Right? There's things I've had to tell my wife that I'm like, man, I, can't, I don't want to have this conversation with you because of my own pride. And in that moment, the Spirit's saying, okay, do you love me more than your wife? That's what you're saying in this moment. I'm saying, okay. I need to trust you, and I need to trust her reaction. I, I just, I got to trust you. And Josh Miles and I were talking about this this week, just this idea of pride, and he, he said something. He's a worship pastor, right? So it's like he says things like this. We're talking about pride, and he says, therein lies the problem, but therein lies the freedom. And it's so true, that idea that, like, there's a problem that there's pride, but there's such freedom when you release it and let it go and let God take control. And you drop your pride. It's really, really hard for us to do. And that's what I think as, as Jesus continues to tell these parables, like, in, in 26 through uh, 29, he talks about, like, like you can't do it on your own. Like, I can't do it on my own. It's not a pull up my own bootstraps spiritually. It's like God has to be the one that does it in and through me as I just open myself up and I be available to him. And that's what happens. This man falls asleep. This farmer falls asleep, and the next day his crop is here. Like, that's about, like, this idea that God is the one producing the growth. It's all about him. And then in verse 30 through 32, he talks about this mustard seed. I really think what he's trying to get out there is just like, um, it, it takes time to grow. It's small, and it takes time, and it takes patience to grow. It starts small, and it grows into this huge thing. And that's how your relationship with God goes. It kind of starts tiny and small. Maybe somebody says something to you, and, it's in, and God begins to open your eyes to who he is. And then it grows, and it grows. But like, it's hard if like, you don't give it the time to grow. If you're impatient with us in our culture, we're just like, everything now, right now, right now. And it's going to take time. Don't be discouraged where you are in the process. Continue to trust God. Don't compare yourself to other people like, oh, I should be at that level. Or I should be like that guy. Let God do what he needs to do inside of you. And then verses 21 through 25, jumping back up, it just talks about like, um, like that process of growing, that God's kingdom. Like, like, it's kind of hidden for a while right now, but eventually, it, it, there's no stopping it. It's going to make itself manifest. Like, God is going to come back 
Jesus is going to come back and everybody will see who he is. And everything will be made right. And Jesus is saying, those who have ears, let them hear. There's a um, seminary professor that's talking about the parables and, and why Jesus taught the parables. And, and he says, the, the parables are kind of like this. And he says, this is, just watch what I do here. And he goes, the parables are kind of like this. He goes, he says, what did I do here? He goes, I drew, what did I draw? House, right? House, building, right? So Jesus is drawing an illustration of the kingdom what the kingdom looks like. And then you know what he's doing? He's actually going into that parable. He's going, he's putting himself in that illustration as he teaches that illustration. And Jesus does this time and time and time again as he's illustrating the idea of the kingdom. So we've understanding what the kingdom looks like, how we can follow the kingdom as we listen. He's also putting himself in the midst of that kingdom, of that parable. And so it's just so fascinating to me, the, the, the words and the imagery that Jesus is using. Um, even this parable right here, like the, there's only one other parable in the whole book of Mark, and it's in Mark chapter 12, and it's this parable of the, the tenants. And the basis idea of it is like these guys are over this land, this master leaves and puts them in charge, and then he sends these servants, and they like beat the smack out of these servants and then they go back and like the master's like what what is going on like if i'll send my son if i send my son then they'll surely respect him he sends his son and the guys that are in, in charge of them they're like let's kill him and then it won't be a problem so they kill him right so jesus right as you can see that's a real basic one he's putting himself in he is the son that comes and dies so when we look at this parable and we think about the way plants grow like, what do plants need to grow? What are the basic things that they need to grow? Right, a plant needs air, carbon dioxide from air. The plants need light, and they need water. Once the, the seed is in the soil, those are the three kind of ingredients they need. Right, and God in Genesis chapter 3 says he breathes life into Adam and Eve, right? There's this, there's this thing in Ezekiel 37, this prophet where he has this vision, there's all these dry bones, and it says that God breathes life into these dry bones, and they come alive, right? And then Jesus has this interaction with Nicodemus in John 3, and he says, no one is born through the Spirit, and he, and he describes the Spirit like the wind. So he's saying God is the air in this equation of growth for this plant, and then Jesus himself in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 4, he has this interaction with this woman. He says, I am the living water. And so Jesus himself is using words that equate to himself. He's the one that causes the growth. He is the light. He is the air. He is the water that grows the plants. And not only needing those elements, but you also need a gardener right to grow a plant well and you know the first interaction where jesus is resurrected he has this, this first encounter with mary at the tomb she goes there and it's in john chapter 20 and she goes and she's distraught and she's kind of uh, angry and confused and she looks at jesus and she doesn't recognize him who does she think he is wait for it the gardener 
Right? So Jesus is putting himself in all these parables because it's about him. It's only through him that you grow and that you change. It's not about you. It's about him. And so, again, our role is the soil. What's the role of the soil in this illustration? Like, the soil really doesn't do much except be open and available, right? Like, like, it's not even the soil's job to dig up those rocks. Like, if you're rocky soil or if you have thorns in your soil, like, it's not the, the job of the soil to root out the thorns. And it's not our job, right? Because Jesus took the thorns on his brow when he went to the cross. And Jesus died and was laid in a tomb behind a rock for your forgiveness of sins. It's not about you. It's about God growing in you. You are hearing this. Now you have a responsibility to continue to be open and allow that growth to continue. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that you're good. God, thanks that you produce the growth in our life. God, help us not choke the word. God, by not spending time with you or Father, grading your word on a curve. Father, help our pride be broken and shattered. We need you. Father, we need you every day. I pray for the men and women. I pray for my own heart, God, that you would continue to Um, cultivate your seed of growth. God, as I listen to your word, you would grow me and change me. We love you, God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.